0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary mccleskey
0: Recently, the USCCB Committee for Religious Liberty worked with scholars to produce a series of essays on foundational topics in religious freedom. Over the course of this year and going into next year, we'll be publishing those essays. On our website, www.usecb.org firstfreedomblog, our first piece from this project came from Richard Garnett, who provided a basic working definition of religious liberty. Our next piece works through one of the most important religious liberty issues today. that is the question of whether religious liberty is merely a license to discriminate against persons who identify as LGBT. This is a claim that's leveled against us quite often. And so we've asked our friend uh, to address this topic, Angela Franks. She's contributed a piece that discusses why the church teaches what she teaches about both human sexuality and authentic freedom. Dr. Franks is a theologian, speaker, writer, and mother of six. She serves as professor of theology at St. John's Seminary in Boston and as a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. She is a life and dignity writing fellow for Church Life Journal published by the McGrath Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Franks, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. First,
0: just about this question itself. Um, that is religious liberty is it just a license to discriminate? Where do we see this idea being expressed in the culture?
2: Pretty much everywhere I think um, but but it comes out especially um, anytime the church makes some kind of statement about sexual morality and then the response tends to be well um, what you're what you're doing is homophobic for example you're um, you're making. People with same sex attraction to be se- second class citizens or to be less than. Um, and so that is a very common and really a very serious accusation. So I think it is important to respond to it.
0: So, as you know, part of the approach to dealing with this question when we, when we took on this project and we came to you about doing this is that we didn't want to just react, you know, we wanted to say something positive that we're not just trying to defend ourselves. We're, we're trying to say something about what it is that the church actually teaches and why she thinks it's good. Um, you refer in your essay um, to the teaching in scripture as the revealed plan of God. Uh, just in, briefly, what is the plan of God? What is the, <laughs> what is, what is the revealed plan of God?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's really important. I think that when it comes to sexuality, the church isn't perceived as just saying no, don't do this, don't do that, right? That's a very negative message. And of course, no is part of what God reveals. He tells us that there's some things that are not good for us. Um, But the overarching context is a yes. We're saying yes to God and to his plan. And in particular, his plan concerns the meaning of the human person. And so when we're talking about sexuality, we're talking about the reality and goodness of the human person and what naturally makes us thrive. And so what's revealed in scripture is that God creates both sexes, both male and female and that they're to come together in unity which is then supposed to be fruitful. And so there's this this unity between the two that depends on the two being different from each other because you can't have a unity unless you have difference and they, they come together and then they're fruitful in um, hopefully the new life of a child, but even just in their, their relationship together is spiritually fruitful and is then expands in charity throughout through the world. And so God um, establishes the two sexes of male and female as an intrinsic part of this plan. It's not just an evolutionary mistake or something, but it's really an intrinsic part of this plan.
1: Dr. Franks I wanted to just well first of all I wanted to thank you for the essay cuz it's just really brilliantly laid out like just the background how you bring in science and the difference between animals and human persons and so I just want to encourage the listeners to read it because in addition to of course listening to this podcast episode Um, but you talk about um, that our uniqueness is found in our ability to reason and choosing a course of action. And I think that's drawing out that dimension is really helpful and important when we're talking about religious liberty, because you just maybe comment on the connection between like our inner life and religious liberty. In other words, so much of, you know, sometimes religious liberty is kind of defined as um, just what we do externally, right? But it's so much more than that it's it's our very inner life the freedom to to worship but also to live that life out our conscience what's explored in our in our inner life but also live that out publicly in the public square could you just talk about that a little bit yeah that's
2: that's really well put the um the fact that we're different from animals we have a tendency to view our sexuality as as something lower in us, something kind of base and maybe even a little embarrassing, um, and therefore disconnected from the fullness of what the human person is. But the human person, the human person is an animal, of course, and so we share that in common. But... um, we're the only animal we're the only living body that also has this capacity to reason and to truly love and so um our sexuality doesn't stay at that level of just simply perpetuating the species or something like that as good as that is um, but it's integrated into the fact that we are this intelligent loving being and so when our sexuality is thought of just in terms of like what we do with our bodies that's really too reductionistic because our sexuality is meant to be part of our capacity to know and love and so when through the coming together of a man and woman a child is conceived um, it's not just simply, oh, well, you know, evolution is working again. Though You know, you can view it in those terms, of course, but, um, but it's also now an opportunity for the spouses who are capable of knowing and loving to raise this child, so to bring their intelligence and their love to bear on what's good for this child? How can this child now be nurtured and not only be, you know, fed and protected from wild animals and, you know, like not not only the physical life, which is of course very important, but also, and even more importantly, that inner life now has to be nurtured as well. And that's what makes us different from all the other animals for whom, you know, reproduction is there's just not that much intensive child rearing involved with the other animal species, certainly not 18 years of intensive child rearing the way we have. And the reason we have that is because um, there's this intelligence and this virtue to um, to foster, to encourage. And so um, religious liberty is not simply a matter of like what I do on Sundays, but it also has to do with uh, my freedom to be able to form my children in a way that's in accord with God's plan, to be able to speak the truth to them about God's plan for sexuality and for the human person, um, but also all, the whole array of truth, of religious and human truth that, that parents have to convey to their children and to form their children in. And so religious liberty involves the, that capacity to do that whole job of parenting, but then also we're supposed to be doing the same thing toward ourselves, right? We're supposed to be fostering, you know, our life is supposed to be a growth in virtue, a growth in intelligence, and we need that that space of freedom to be able to do that.
0: I like that when you're comparing the, you know, human persons to animals, it, it reminded me of, it reminds me of when I was a teaching assistant uh, for a professor who, and he was introducing undergraduates to this idea He just asked them, does a squirrel have an existential crisis? No, it just it just gathers nuts. You know, that's what it does. Exactly. (laughs) I wonder, though, if you could say I think, you know, this It's this is helpful to talk about what it is that the church teaches for a lot of us. It may sound kind of and it can seem almost intuitive, but it's not this isn't the dominant way. This isn't the dominant understanding in our in our broader culture today, which you've just described. Can you say, like, how do you how would you how do you see the the dominant understanding or how does the church contrast with that? But then not to just be negative about I mean, is there anything that we can take from what has become especially especially since the 60s, the way that things have changed in terms of how people understand human sexuality? Um, Is there anything positive that can be taken away from from all of that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So the the larger culture's understanding of sexuality is very adult-centric and um, very pleasure-centric, that um, it has to do with two consenting adults doing what they want with their bodies um, that promotes their personal happiness. Um, so this is, this is something Helen Alvarez, who's a legal scholar, talks a lot about, that you see this reflected in the law. In fact, that our, for example, Supreme Court decisions are, are more and more privileging sexuality as being about the adults in question. And, and even about an opportunity, sexuality is an opportunity for us to form our identity. Um, that comes out in some of the Supreme Court decisions. And so um, that's a very adult-centric viewpoint. The church has always had a family-centric and child-centric viewpoint when it comes to sexuality, that the sexual act is the act that if things go right biologically, a child will be conceived. And so it's always understood sex to be an activity with its own natural endpoint, its own natural goal. And when the sexual revolution happened, which was really entailed the popularization of contraception, contraception sort of whacks off that end or or tries to, because of course there's method and user failure. And that's why the more contraception use we had, the more abortion we had because of all the contraceptive failure. But so contraception and then abortion says, well, no, sex doesn't have to be that goal directed, that end directed activity. We're going to just whack off this end. Well, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're going on a journey, and you don't know where you're going, what do you do? <laughs> and so, you know, for a lot of people, like their sex lives is a lot of sort of trying to figure out where they're going. And what because like, they're, they're not, they're told that sex no longer is a is a journey naturally t- tending towards something. Um, And of course, as part of that, tending toward conceiving a child, that means that, the relationship between the adults has to be tending toward the union of the two so that they can be a real team, that they can be a real family. And so the uh, the goal direction of sex meant something not only for the act itself, but also for the relationship between the woman and the man. And so when contraception comes and kind of whacks off that end, Um, We don't know what the sex act is for. We don't know what relationships are for anymore. And so it's interesting that post-sexual revolution, now we're what, like about, you know, 60 or so years after the sexual revolution. um, What we have is, in fact, fewer people having sex. And part of, you know, a huge, this really has to do with pornography to a great degree, but um, pornography is also, I think, facilitated by the contraceptive mentality because sex doesn't have to be about kids. And so what we have is this kind of weariness, in fact, about sex and everything that goes along with it. And as a result, um, people, I think a lot of people are just sort of opting out Um, they're They don't, it's too, it's too much work to try to figure out what sex is about and what a relationship is about when you're kind of starting from scratch, and so I think what the church can bring into the situation is first of all an answer to that anxiety and that um, confusion that we don't have to start from scratch. Um, and then the other thing, you know, the church can bring a lot of things into the situation. But one other thing that that the Catholic viewpoint can bring is an um, an emphasis on the fact that you know in the with this. With the sexual revolution, our identity is really something that we're using sex to form the way the Supreme Court decisions say, you know, that we kind of form our identity as a result of our sexual choices. And the, the church can bring this different take on the question of identity, namely that Our identity is something we don't have to work so hard to manufacture on our own. Our identity is something that's given to us by God. It begins with the fact that we're human beings with dignity, which is something that really resonates with people today. And it's part of the the discomfort with the church's view on sexuality, because a lot of people think that it denies people their dignity. But, But in fact, what the church is saying is that everybody, every human being has this intrinsic dignity that you 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 don't build your identity and your dignity out of what you do but it's already there. So instead of identity being the end point of the process it's kind of the beginning point. And out of that you then can be this free and intelligent loving person in your relationships ordered toward self-gift. And so I think that there's the 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 current viewpoint hits a lot of the right notes, but doesn't assemble them correctly. And so you get something that's really discordant, but the church can kind of take take the same ideas and the same notes and show the the melody that it's supposed to be.
0: Well, I want to follow up on on this a little bit, because a couple of things, and just ask you to kind of tease them out a little bit more. As you were describing what you might say is the dominant view today, one way I think of summing that, summing it up is that if sexuality is it's not really directed towards much of anything except as you said forming my own identity which is to say it's it's aimed inwardly or towards myself it's not aimed in any way towards the other obviously that's not the only difference but that seems to be a big a a big issue there is that there's not really much of any kind of intrinsic goal to sexuality and so then you kind of an antidote to that view is the view that you you bring in with theology of the body this idea that we if we find our deepest meaning not even just in in sex but it, it just in even just in how we live our lives and in giving of ourselves um and giving of ourselves to others um could you talk a little bit about that like how that under, how that affects the way we think about about marriage and sexuality
2: yeah, John Paul II relies on the um, Vatican II document, Gaudium et spes, which he had a hand in writing, so it's, <laughs> um, it's no accident that his ideas are there. Um, but in that document, it says that man only finds himself in giving himself. And so, as you said, that that's not just about sexual morality, that's about our entire life. And the um, the truth is, therefore, that we are only content as human beings by being ordered toward self-gift. And so, as you said, the the dominant view of sexuality is really this this kind of vacuuming into myself, um, trying to pull together, you know, the pleasures and the experiences that I can have in order to be a satisfied person. And it's understandable that people try to do that. It's, you know, if you feel like there's something missing in your life, you have a tendency to try to bring more experiences and pleasures and so forth into your life. Um, But what the church reveals is that that never works. That trying trying to fix that emptiness inside of ourselves never works by just accumulating pleasures and experiences because that emptiness is really our need for God. And only God can fill that God-sized whole inside of ourselves and so we have to then be outwardly directed and so first and foremost our self-gift is really a gift to God and that's that's how you know people get nervous when they hear language of self-gift because it sounds maybe um, codependent or um, like a recipe for abusive relationships or something and it certainly can go sour in that kind of way but um, but it's not meant to be a disappearance of ourselves it's meant to be a gift and so one of the things that john paul ii talks about is the fact that we have to be really integrated as human beings we have to have a certain level of self possession in order to be able to give of ourselves he talks about that in his philosophical writings and so what the church is really um what what god is really giving us is this template for a mature human self possession that then can bear fruit in service to others, and so that's really a radical reformulation of life in general, but in particular of um, of sexual ethics. And so that's I think that it's it's very challenging to people, but it's also the way that people can really find true happiness and satisfaction.
1: So to follow up on that, Dr. Franks, then um, this based on this Christian understanding of sexuality. In your essay, you also talk about your discussion of freedom. So, how does this Christian understanding of freedom differ from the way that many Americans tend to think about freedom?
2: We 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 have a model of freedom that that's a maybe a consumerist choice model. You know, Pepsi versus Coke. Like, freedom means having lots of options in front of us, um, and that's true as a as a very rudimentary understanding of freedom that we have to be able to make choices between options to be free. But that's really just the beginning of freedom. It's not the the fullness of freedom. Because if you think about it, if freedom is just simply a matter of having a lot of options, then you would be freest when you don't choose anything at all ever, because then you have all of your options ahead of you. And in fact, that's what a lot of people get paralyzed in that place where they don't want to choose a spouse or they don't want to choose a vocation or because they wanna have all their options in front of them. But all that means is that they're, like, they're not actually enjoying choosing something and the, the benefits that come from, from making a choice and following a path. And so to the goal, one of our goals, I think as Catholics is to help people understand that freedom is more than just simply, simply having a lot of choices. It means being able to really commit yourself you know people who um who never commit themselves are are shrunken people you know they don't really have the courage to be able to do something daring and step out on a path and and so they're they're really less of the kind of person that they could be um because part of growing in human maturity is is really being able to be all in on something and so that's the the deeper understanding of freedom that that I think we need to call people to.
0: What you've been talking about so far, and talking about both self-gift and then, in this discussion of freedom, bringing up the point about commitment, it does kind of point to this question of of happiness um, that that all people naturally desire to be happy. I think that especially as you talk about like a lot of people feeling paralyzed um, by, by freedom. I mean, you see, it seems like you see a lot of this or at least what I read. I mean, it does seem like a lot of young adults really struggle with a lot of these kind of cultural pathologies that you've been outlining. So can you just talk about happiness? What do we mean when we talk about happiness? And it does seem like the that we have something I mean, all of this, what what we're saying this today is that we really do have something to propose as we started off saying that's like, not just about do this, don't do that, but that we really do believe that we have a message and we have something or, or a call to, to share with people to say, you know these think these feelings that you're feeling or these experiences that you're having can be ordered in this way, and you will actually be happier um uh, but in in a certain sense, i mean the even the way we're using the term happy is going to be maybe we're using it in a particular kind of way so, could could you talk about that a little bit?
2: yeah, the happiness really is the question on the table, I think, and so people who oppose the church's um, sexual teaching will will argue that what they're trying to do is simply to pursue happiness. And the church is is, is an obstacle. The church's teaching is an obstacle. So it does come down to a proper understanding of what does it mean to be happy? Because we, in a society that really rewards those endorphin hits, those sort of one-off experiences of of, a rush of feeling, um, that's a... It, it's, you know, a real pleasurable experience. There's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But, um, but happiness is more than just a momentary fleeting experience. Um, and, and I think that people sense that maybe very dimly, but I think people quickly become discontent. That it's like, is this all that there is, you know, like, it's not, it's not, it's like, um, you know, having a a water vapor sandwich you know, for lunch is just not that satisfying in the end. And so what, um, you know, and this, the, this understanding, the richer understanding of happiness is not unique to the Catholic Church because it's part of how God made us. And so other people have observed, you know, philosophers, for example, have observed that um, happiness has to be more than a momentary experience. It has to be more than having something like money or power, because really all of those things also are means to an end. It's like, well, why do you want money? Because I mean, what are you going to do with your money? Right? Like there, there still has to be something that's really ultimate. And so ultimately where happiness comes from is what, you know, the old fashioned word virtue describes, or in other words, it's like the real human good of being Fully developed as a human being, which means not only our relationships with others, but also, most importantly, our relationship with God. And so everything that God reveals to us as far as the the moral code has to do with orienting ourselves towards that ultimate good. So that union with God and then in right relationships with other people. Um, And so that's real human happiness. It's much richer it's much more challenging than just pursuing those endorphin hits or, you know, whatever experiences people want. But um, the, the, the reason that the church cannot give up on it is that it's the truth. (laughs) Like it's, it's really what makes us content as human beings. And so for us to, for the, for Catholics to turn around and say, okay, well, no, actually, you know, pursue your fleeting of feelings and that'll, that'll be fine for you. It'll work out fine. It's not true. And so that's why. That's why the Catholic Church can't surrender the, the revelation that we have that's firmly based on the nature of who we are as human beings, because it just happens to be the truth of what makes us really content
1: as humans. Um, I've heard the word joy maybe is more apt, and I've heard an acronym for joy is Jesus, others, and you. And I think of that often, right? It's very simple, right? You know, it orients, right? Yeah, yeah, it works. Right, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. The, that it's more than just a matter of feeling but it's about like a whole way of life.
0: As we're moving towards a close, can you just say, talk a little bit about what this means for our promotion of religious freedom? What is this understanding of freedom that we've just talked about, but how does this, how does this, um, affect our, our promotion of religious liberty?
2: it helps to to see that that part of the the richness of the human being is freedom that because we can know and because we can love we can make real decisions we don't just have to follow our instinct like other animals um that really gives us this free range of possibilities and so Um, religion, our relationship with God is meant to be something that we enter into freely. It's meant to be something that engages our mind and our will and our whole person in making a choice for God. And so, um, understanding better the whole human person helps us to understand why religious liberty is, um, is a good for human beings because it facilitates in a legal and cultural way that basic human orientation to make a free gift of ourselves to God and to others. And so um, we can obviously still do that in an interior way if we're prohibited from practicing our faith or, you know, plenty of people have had to do that in the, the history of the church. But an ideal social setting is one that facilitates that pursuit of the good that the human person is naturally drawn to to follow.
0: So then just to kind of sum it up, um, to conclude what you might call an elevator speech, if somebody just comes up to you and point blank, you got like 30 seconds or one minute to say, isn't religious liberty just a license to discriminate? Um, tell me what if my neighbor says this to me. <laughs> tell me, what do, what do I say to him?
2: That's the, hardest, that's the hardest thing to do, is to be true and accurate briefly. Um, but I would give it a stab by saying that religious liberty is the opportunity to tell other people what God has revealed to us that is, is really good for us, and the opportunity then for us to pursue that good ourselves. I think that's an. I think that got me up to maybe the third floor.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try it out the next it's a, time.
1: It's a yes, a yes, and answer, right? Yeah, I love
0: it. <laughs> well, Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, really, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Angela Franks about her recent essay she published for the Committee for Religious Liberty. You can find it at www.usccb.org slash First Freedom blog. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom podcast. Thank you.